Here we go. Episode 21. So in this one, guest host Aurora Ford and I sit down with Lisa Sauter. Lisa is the executive director of Beans Cafe, a soup kitchen here in Anchorage. I really enjoyed this one because we got a chance to talk about something I don't really know much about. And I think that unless you've been homeless or in similar dire straits, I don't think it's something easily understandable. Um, one thing that, that really stood out to me was when I admit to Lisa that I give homeless people money. And she told me that there are better ways to help those people in need, like buying them a bus pass or telling them about the services available to them. So instead of rolling up to the light at, uh, say, like 15th, that's a common area for for people to hang out in and kind of panhandle. And I live downtown, so that's that's the route that I take to go home. And I have uh, regularly given people, if I have a dollar, if I have $2, if I have 50 cents or something like that, I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, hand it out the window. And Lisa told me that, that that's not helpful. What is helpful is when you point them in a direction like Beans Cafe or the Brother Francis Shelter, and they're able to get the services they need to to kind of move on to that, uh, to being more more of a uh, like a member, a working member of society. Not trying to give too much away, so let's let's get into the company men. So as always, we got to give these people a shout out for helping to support this podcast. So Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, and the newest company man, Derek Adolph. Shout out to Derek for, for coming in at that company man level. I remember growing up in the snow and skate scene here in Alaska with Derek. Uh, and dude used to shred. We, we haven't talked in years, but I am so pumped that, that, that he's coming in, that he's listening to the podcast, that he's enjoying it. Thanks for listening, Derek, and thank you so much for your support, man. I really appreciate it. If you enjoy this podcast, hit us up with a review on iTunes and check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash crude magazine. You go there and you can support this podcast. Okay, I think that pretty much checks off everything I need to talk about in these intros. Here's Lisa Sauter. Mike is hot. Mike's hot. Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's record. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. This is a note, Lisa. I'm holding up a note right now that um, Aurora sends me these these really great synopsis um, synopses. I don't know. Summary. Yeah. When she's a guest host of the the person we're we're going to interview, right? Just so I can like familiarize myself, you know, outside of like my Google searches, right? And she starts off with, "I have wanted to be just like Lisa since the moment I met her." Oh, yeah, dude. And and I wanted to ask Aurora, why is that? Um. Well, I think I mean I sort of go on to explain that. Um, I have now known you for four years, maybe some four, a little more than four. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to come hang out with you down at Beans when things are going on. And I've also been to your house when you have, you know, 20 people over and, um, you know, the clients at Beans are, their lives are a little different than some of the people that do get to come to your house for dinner. And, um, maybe those people are, we'd call them influencers, I think. 
some of them. Um, and there's no difference ever in the way that you treat anybody. You're kind and warm and always laughing and it does not matter who's in front of you or what their struggles have been or I just think you're pretty rad. Well, that is, that's very humbling. Thank you. Oh, sorry for, yeah, starting out all feely, but you know, that's the way I am. We're still all <laughs> trying to get out of the Hallmark Christmas movie mode. Yeah. So, you yeah. Know. <laughs> the Christmas Prince. <laughs> so Aurora, and you, you, you kind of alluded to it here. You're into cooking. Yes. And you have these these kind of like massive like banquets or, I mean, what would you call them? Uh, are you talking about work or at home? At home. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we do uh, Sunday dinners. It uh, started really when we moved back up here. I'm from Anchorage originally, but hadn't lived here in a number of years. And my kids weren't really raised here. And we moved back with a bunch of teenagers. And I knew none of their friends and none of their friends' parents. And, you know, I know a good way to lure teens in is to feed them. So we kind of started this thing with Sunday dinner and the kids could invite whoever they wanted. And we'd invite a few people because we were kind of trying to reestablish friendships with long-term friends and meet new people. And it just kind of has kept growing from there. And now, even though um, all my kids are out of high school, in fact, my daughter's going to graduate from college this year, Yahoo, um, we've continued it. And it's really been fun. We have, you know, a few regulars that come most every Sunday. And then we have... Um, you know, different guest appearances, I guess, and just kind of whoever's around or whoever I happen to run into. And I'll say, hey, what are you doing Sunday? Come over. We're, you know, doing whatever. Sometimes we have a theme. Sometimes it's as simple as chili. Sometimes I get really elaborate. Sometimes we make pierogies. Mm -hmm. We've done we've done all kinds of things. So it's, it's just a really fun way to bring people together. One of the things that I thought about asking as I was writing all of these notes out, I was like, I just it has never struck me before that you know, this is one of your one of your favorite things to do is Sunday dinners and, and feeding people and all that stuff. And you ended up being the executive director at Beans Cafe, which is designed to feed a bunch of people, you know, like bring warmth and community. And and uh, so you kind of answered my question. I was wondering which one came first, but it sounds like you guys were doing that on your own before it ever became your profession. Yeah, a little bit. And I think that's kind of what called to me, too, about the Beans job. You know, before I uh, worked for Beans Cafe, I was the state director for the American Heart Association, which is a fabulous organization. Um, you know, I have history of uh, heart disease in my family, my dad, my grandfather, my uncle, my grandmother. I'm adopted, so I don't know what any of it means for me personally, but, um, you know, had a lot of loss in our family because of heart disease. And uh, so it's a cause I'm certainly passionate about. Um, but I love doing it, but it was very corporate. You know, you're raising money for research, right? That's what the Heart Association does best. They raise money and they kick ass on research mm -hmm. and are uncovering new things all the time. So it's not necessarily a super local connection. We did some great local projects like the eighth grade CPR programs and schools and worked with some great local people. But I really was kind of craving that more grassroots local connection. And when I saw the job posted for Beans Cafe, it just really struck a chord with me. You know, my uncle had been homeless. Um, I know how hard that was on my mom. I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, it, it just kept calling me. And I'd go and like, look at the job description. And I'd go, oh, yeah, I like what I'm doing. Do I really want to do that? And I literally waited. Like, I updated my resume, worked on my cover letter. And I waited to submit it until I think like 11 o'clock the night it was due like by midnight. Mm -hmm. So it was really one of those. It, but it just kept calling my name and calling my name. And I talked with my husband and he's like, you know, if you think you'd be happy doing it, you know, go for it. Why not? And uh, it, it worked out, obviously. Um, and I've been there now uh, five and a half years. Mm -hmm. So a little over five and a half years. Do you still find it rewarding? Every day. Yeah. Every day. Difficult. Di mm -hmm. Most difficult job I've ever had. 
Can you explain why for, you know, maybe those of us in this room might know a little bit about that, but um, why is it hard? Uh, I think just seeing people sometimes um, with no hope right. um, to me is just so heartbreaking and, you know, trying to give them just that little bit of hope back every day. And I really believe we can do that just by treating people with dignity and respect and offering them a meal. I mean, that's really kind of the first thing to developing a relationship or trust. Mm -hmm. And it all starts with that. So many of the clients at the cafe have been through horrible, unspeakable things, uh, you know, all kinds of childhood trauma. They've had their own addictions and mental health issues and loss and just things that I think most of us would would struggle terribly to survive. Um, mm -hmm. And yet they're surviving and not in an easy situation. Yeah. And the spirit many times of the people there and how they will give to others is is really something amazing to watch. When they have very little to give. When they have literally nothing to give, they will still give. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of my favorite stories was um, a few years ago, we were doing a program called I Wish where clients got to ask for a specific item. We, we don't do it anymore because it just got to be um, hard because not everybody got their wishes fulfilled and then some people got too many things and it, it, it just ended up not feeling good anymore. So so we do just kind of a more general uh, holiday gift program with the beanie boxes and things like that. But one client, the only thing he asked for was a uh, pecan pie. Hmm. Literally, that was it. And like nobody picked up his wish. Like his wish was one that had gone ungranted. And we're like, oh, no, that's not happening. So one of our staff went on her own time, her own dollar, went to Costco and bought, you know, one of the giant pecan pies that are just, you know, gorgeous and amazing. And um, so as we were giving out everybody, you know, giving out everybody's um, items that they had wished for, uh, I'll never forget the look on his face when we called him up and gave him a pie. I mean, you would have thought we handed him a million dollars. That's awesome. And the first thing he said can I have some forks? And he immediately opened up the pie and passed out forks to everybody at the table to share in the one thing he asked for. Is that is that pretty consistent with uh, what you've seen? It, it is. You know, um, yeah, uh, I think that most of the the folks are, are super giving and they will give whatever they have, even if it's very little. I mean, even just the other night I was down, you know, we're doing um, emergency cold weather shelter right now. Mm -hmm. So we're now open 24 hours a day. And uh, we were uh, a little over capacity. So I went down a little early. I, I went down and was there for a little while. So we maintain our ratio of, you know, one to 25, one staff for every 25 clients. And so I was there for a few hours until another staff person could come in. And we didn't have enough mats because uh, we had over 100 people. We have 100 mats. And one lady, um, younger lady, gave her mat to an older lady. And then now she didn't have a mat. And then another guy saw that she didn't have a mat. So he gave her his mat. And then it just started this whole thing of people like, well, wait, take this. You can have mine. And it was it was really amazing to watch um, people that, you know, literally this this young woman was just going to sleep on the floor. She was fine. She wasn't complaining about it. She, mm -hmm. You know, I said, I thought you had a mat just a minute ago. What happened? She's like, oh, well, you know. I don't want to say anybody's name, but so-and-so over there, you know, she, she didn't get a mat, so I gave her mine. And then the guy, you know, we keep men and women separated, but the guy over on the other side then realized she's sleeping on the floor. So then he's given her his mat, and then somebody gave him a sleeping bag, and, you know, it just, it, it all worked out. Yeah. Have you learned anything about humanity um, being in this job, seeing something like that? I mean, there's, there's so much... There's so much crappy stuff that happens in the world, and when you see something like that, it kind of, like, reaffirms your your belief in humanity, you know, like, oh, you know, we're not that bad. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and unfortunately or fortunately, I mean, we see people when they're at their worst and at, and at their best, even in the shelter, you know, some people, they can have very bad days and they may be having, you know, a mental health crisis or they may be having, you know, a little overindulgent in whatever their favorite flavor may be, um, you know, and they'll sometimes come up and be aggressive or um, say unkind things. And almost always it's followed up the next day with a hug and an apology and I'm sorry. And I think there's a lot to be said for the clients knowing that the staff there, well, you know, we're, we have certain boundaries that you mm -hmm. can't cross. Um, we're still going to welcome you back and we're going to still treat you with dignity and respect because we know you're human and you're in a terrible situation for the most part. And, and we're there to try and help them get out of it. And you think that starts with food? I think it does. I think it starts with kindness and food mm -hmm. and a warm place to be, warm, safe place to be. Around the world, mm -hmm. it seems to be the thing. Yeah. So Lisa, you, you work with and around a lot of homeless people in Anchorage. What can you tell us about the average homeless person in Anchorage? Or even if there's like a commonality or is, are there all different types of people from all different backgrounds? Yeah, I think that there certainly are people from all different backgrounds. And, you know, on a busy day at Beans Cafe, we'll see over 500 people. Wow. So people will ask me, you know, well, how do we end homelessness? And I can say, well, you know, I've got about 500 clients a day. So I really need about 500 different solutions mm -hmm. because there is no one size fits all answer. Certainly housing is part of it. Um, Mental health support is a huge part of it. Addiction treatment is another part of it. Uh, I'm a real believer in even if we provide all those things for people, we have to help them find a sense of purpose. You know, we can get them right. housed. We might be able to get them sober. Uh, we can deal with their mental health issues, uh, maybe get them on some medications that helps them be a little more balanced. But if they don't have a reason to get out of bed in the morning, mm -hmm. what does it matter? And I think that's true for everybody. And I think sometimes that kind of gets forgotten in the crisis of being homeless. Yeah. Um, but sense of purpose is really important. And, you know, we have about 120 jobs a day that our clients do. And this is something a lot of people don't realize is that our clients – Almost all of them on a daily basis do something to help out at the mm -hmm. cafe. You know, we run our chef uh, right now. My gosh, I think they're putting out well over a thousand meals a day um, between we do breakfast, lunch and dinner now. Plus we do um, goodie bags for all the clients that volunteer that have a sandwich and kind of a cold dinner to go. And we also do uh, meals for Rural Cap for uh, Carlick Manor. Um, so we're producing a very high volume of meals with food from the food bank and donated food. And we, we don't have the luxury of, you know, calling up Cisco and giving them our order for the week. Yeah, you yeah. know, we, we, we every day is chopped yeah. in our kitchen, literally, mm -hmm. it, literally every day. It's like, okay, what are we, you know, we plan it out a few days ahead, but it's always about what do we have on hand? What has to be used first? You know, those sort of things. And I think the clients take great ownership in volunteering. And, you know, one story that comes to mind, our chef, one of our chefs, um, he slept in. This is something he's like in four years had never done, had never shown up late. And our chefs are usually there by 6, 6.30 in the morning, getting everything ready, getting it prepped so we can start serving breakfast about 7.30. And he just slept right through his alarm, came, you know, hauling into the kitchen at like quarter to seven thinking, oh my goodness, nothing is going to be done. Breakfast is going to be late. This is going to be a mess. He walked in, the clients had everything ready to go. Yeah, Everything was done. They're like, yeah, we don't even need you. Go home, go back to bed. You know, so mm -hmm. they really take ownership in it. 
And, you know, our kitchen routinely uh, health inspections get 100, get 98. We don't have a single maintenance person on staff. All of the cleaning is done by our clients. I didn't know that either. Yeah. We don't have a maintenance person. We don't have a janitor. We, you know, we do everything through the work of the clients. And we have community volunteers that come in and help prep and serve meals. But, you know, mostly the community uh, volunteers aren't in there scrubbing toilets and, and scrubbing the floor at night. Mm-hmm. Why isn't there any, why isn't there more resources allocated to something like this? Well, you know, we're trying, and that's something we've started in the last uh, about year and a half, uh, two years, we've started a workforce readiness program because I really look at our volunteer program as an opportunity for people to become employed. And it's something mm-hmm. we've kind of done informally. Uh, we received a grant from Wells Fargo, which was great. We've spent that down. We're looking for more funds to keep it going. We've got a part-time person now um, doing workforce readiness, but we've kind of really tried to meet people where they're at and help them. You know, some people need, uh, you know, maybe two or three little things. They need a food handler's card. They need a current resume and an ID, and they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Other people may need to work with us for six months or more in the kitchen or doing maintenance work. Or, you know, if they want to work in a more administrative setting, they can work in our client services office. Um, and it's, it's you know, we kind of started with this vision of, okay, we're going to have these different tracks, and then they're going to go through these different classes. And that really didn't work because it really has to be so individualized. It, it, there's again, there's no one size fits all. Not everybody needs the same thing. Not everybody wants to work in a kitchen. Not everybody wants to do janitorial work. You know, how do we find that person, find their passion um, and purpose? Mm-hmm. And and that's really something we're we're working hard on. If you were to convince the the population of Anchorage to to help out, you know, to really get involved in helping something like Beans Cafe, and maybe they're not familiar with with homelessness in Anchorage. What is maybe an emblematic situation that you would be like, you know, point to, like, this is why we need to look out for these people? I think everybody at some time in their life needs a little help. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our clients don't have the support of family. Um, and it could be because they've burned the bridges with them due to addiction or mental health issues and the family's done what they can and they just can't do anymore. Or they don't have a family that they can rely on. Um, and they don't have that safety net. And and really, Beans Cafe is is the safety net for those folks who don't have a friend or a cousin or a mother or an uncle that they can go sleep on their couch or get 200 bucks to fix their car or, you know, whatever it is they may need. You know, we've had everybody from, you know, guys who were crab fishermen and made big bucks over the years. And then all of a sudden, they get their legs smashed by a pot and they mm-hmm. can't work and they get depressed and, you know, I'm thinking of one client in particular, and, you know, this guy was living a great life. He had a fiance, he had a really nice truck, he had a condo, life was good. He went to Hawaii every year, you know, life was good uh, until he got injured and couldn't work. And then he fell into a depression and his girlfriend decided that wasn't so much fun anymore and she couldn't help him sort it out. She left and he went through all of his savings and ended up being homeless. And, you know, it kind of can happen to anybody. And he had to really step back and look and be like, okay, so even though I've done this my whole life, I have to think about what can I do now? And, you know, helping people identify that and change their um, focus and expectations, is, is, is it's a hard thing for people to do. And, you know, I'd say to people listening, you know, if you're an employer, be a second chance employer. There are so many amazing, some of our best staff are folks that have some pretty lengthy criminal histories. Um, we we definitely walk the walk with um, being a second chance employer. And, you know, just because somebody has gaps in employment or they've been convicted of a crime, 
does not mean they won't be a great employee. I mean, mm-hmm. some of our best employees, most loyal, would do anything for the clients, for the organization, are those folks that have made poor decisions in the past, but um, their past doesn't define them. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something people need to remember, that people can change, and especially if they're given the chance. But if people aren't given a chance and they can't get jobs... How do you ever get out of this situation? Mm-hmm. You know, we can't afford to put everybody in permanent supportive housing. No. You know, we have to help people find their way. And whether that's, you know, working in a kitchen or it's, you know, um, shoveling snow or it's, you know, uh, working as a security guard. I don't know what, you know, whatever people want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of options and there's we need employers to to be a little more forgiving on on looking past some of the the past circumstances people have been in. Yeah. And to just try and sort of reframe that because, you know, I've had similar experiences with, um, you know, friends and coworkers that you you find out maybe mm-hmm. what their criminal history is. And um, maybe not in all cases, but there are cases in which you almost could look at that as an asset because that person is going to value that job more than anybody that's never had struggles. Or do you know what I mean? There's It's, it's just it. we could do better at reframing that. I agree. I agree. And, you know, Um, One of our employees, you know, immediately comes to mind that he now has taken on the role of mentoring others. And when we have another new employee that comes in that maybe has done quite a bit of time, you know, we kind of buddy them up and we work them on the same shift so that that he can support the new new guy uh, or the new woman who's who's on board. And that's been really successful for us. And and I think it's something a lot of other employers would would have luck with if they'd give it a chance. And it's they don't all work out. You know, we've yeah. certainly had our case of heartbreak where we really thought somebody was going to make it and they were doing great. And all of a sudden they go AWOL. And it's happened, you know, and, and that's it's hard mm-hmm. and it's heartbreaking when it happens. But you have to keep trying and you have to keep giving opportunity. I mean, I think um, when people think of Beans Cafe, maybe they imagine that all of your clients are um, categorized maybe as chronically homeless. But correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not always the case. Like you feed anybody that's hungry, anybody that doesn't have meals at home. And technically, the definitions of homelessness are more than just sleeping on the street, right? Like you could be somebody that's sleeping in a car or mm-hmm. someone that's couch surfing. Um, and I think that's kind of another big misconception that a lot of people have, that homelessness is, you know, the idea is it's like sort of a middle-aged man and he sleeps on the streets and, you know, he probably has a, a drinking problem. And mm-hmm. there are, you know, as you alluded to, there are so many just so many different situations and circumstances. And um, I I guess I'm wondering if the majority of people down there fall into the chronically homeless category or if it really is just, I mean, all across the board. You know, I think it's across the board. We certainly do have, you know, a, a pretty large group of chronically homeless folks. And mm-hmm. um, one segment of that that I particularly worry about, you know, we're seeing an aging of our clients. And, you know, Beans Cafe this year has been around for 40 years. We probably have a few folks that have been with us off and on for 40 years. And we have now some generations of people. We have a couple of families that I know of, you know, grandpa, daughter, granddaughter, all use our services or have used our services at different times or been in and out of emergency shelter or needing assistance. And, you know, that's certainly not the trend we want to continue. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. You know, we are predominantly male. Um about 70% male, about 30% female, but there's a lot of other options for women. And I think that's wonderful. You know, we've got, um, you know, somebody's coming out of a domestic violence situation, there's there's shelters specifically for them, there's shelters specifically for women with children. Downtown Hope Center has a a female shelter, uh, especially focused on, you know, people coming out of sex trafficking or domestic violence situations, but they don't have kids. I think there's a lot more kind of 
pocket smaller options for women, right. which is phenomenal. Um, but we need some more, I think, targeted programs for men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when we've been running into this uh, emergency cold weather shelter and probably, you know, when we're doing the emergency cold weather shelter, I would say probably 90% of the people staying with us are men. And these are the folks that maybe are the hardcore campers and it's just too much for them. They, they got to come in for a few days while it's this cold. Um, we really need to find ways to reach out to those folks and get them some options and mm-hmm. let them know that this doesn't have to be their life, that it, it can change. You know, we we ran uh, emergency cold weather shelter two years ago. Uh, we didn't operate it last year. Our building was used, but we didn't operate it. Two years ago, we ran it. And we have a client that is kind of the epitome of what you'd think a homeless guy would look like, right? You know, he's got mm-hmm. a big beard and he's um, got some mental health issues, uh, but super gregarious and helpful and has always done a ton around the cafe and, you know, occasionally gets disruptive just because he's having some issues, um, doesn't have an alcohol problem, uh, mostly mental health capacity and, and challenges there. And uh, he had been a hardcore camper for probably 30 years, at least, wow. maybe longer. I'm not sure. And we finally got him to come in and stay with us uh, when we operated the shelter two years ago. And we it, it took a lot of coddling, I think, on the part of the staff. They really wanted to make it work for him. And, you know, one night he got mad and took his mat and left. And we're like, okay, you got to bring the mat back. Mm-hmm. Bring the mat back. You can come back tonight and try again. And you know, he wasn't used to being in small spaces with lots of people for right. long periods of time. I mean, he'd come in and have lunch. He'd, you know, run around, change the garbage cans, do dishes, do those kind of things. He could do that. But to be in a space for 10 or 12 hours with, you know, 80, 90 other people was a lot for him. It's a lot for anybody. It's a lot for anybody. And we worked with him and worked with him and worked with him. And then he finally decided, you know, this doesn't suck, basically. (laughs) I'm not freezing to death. Nobody's stealing my stuff. Um, I'm comfortable. I kind of like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we were able to encourage him to apply for housing. And he's now been successfully housed for almost two years. Wow. And this is somebody that if you would have asked me, what client do you think will never get housed and be successful in housing? I would have picked him. This dude. Yeah. And and he's been tremendously successful in it. And Mm -hmm. he's happy. He still comes down to the cafe. Not every day. But he comes down, you know, says hi, does a few chores, maybe has lunch. Um, But he's doing amazingly well. So you mentioned mental health. What are what are the options for someone who is um, like you know, him? Yeah, like him. Yeah. Right now, unfortunately, there are very few. Um, you know, I know the Muni is looking at um, even establishing their own behavioral health department again at the municipal level because of the failure of the state system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got some community health resources. It's certainly not enough. Uh, it, it's a very frustrating situation. And, you know, it's kind of the same with addiction treatment, too. We, we just don't have enough places to refer people to. And, and even for the people that are coming to us and saying, I want help, we're struggling to find a place to refer them to, let alone all the people that aren't even to the point yet of understanding that they need help right. or aren't willing to ask for it yet. You know, there's not even enough bandwidth to reach out and kind of wrap our arms around them and say, okay, come in, we can help you. Um, you know, we need so many more options and and services. What kind of mental illness are we we talking about here? Is there kind you of like it. a broad stroke? You or name it. Yeah. Name I it. mean, okay. really a little bit of everything. And to me, it's so most of it is so co-occurring with um, some type of addiction for most people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and it's, you know, chicken and the egg, which came first. And so many times it's really hard to unravel even for a psychiatrist. 
Um, you know, we hear, you know, folks that have gotten into like uh, Carlick Manor, they've gotten into a housing first and they, you know, get some treatment and they get some help and they maybe get on some meds. And, you know, uh, one one woman's story, you know, stands out to me that she stopped drinking be- after they got her on some medications because she was schizophrenic and she was hearing voices and she was drinking right. so she wouldn't hear voices. Well, I can understand that. She didn't really understand what was happening to her. And that was the only way she knew how to cope with it. And once she was given the proper medications, she didn't need the booze anymore because she could cope and she mm-hmm. could be functional. And I think she actually went on, I believe, to get a CNA and is working and doing great. So, you know, there are those stories that people are undiagnosed of, you know, basically every flavor, frankly, yeah. of of mental health issue. You just fall um, through the cracks. Absolutely. And especially... When it could be such a simple solution like it, that. Not for everybody, not obviously, for everybody. but in certain cases, yeah. yeah. And, you know, a tremendous amount, you know, and talking with clients, tremendous amount of uh, adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the ACEs score for most of our clients is probably off the charts. What is what is ACEs? Sorry? Uh, it's Adverse Childhood Experience. Okay. okay. It's just an acronym. Yeah, it's an acronym. And it's, um, you know, something that uh, they're studying a lot more, especially in the tribal health care system. And we did some training on it uh, with our staff. Uh, we've had uh, Dr. Matt, Hirsch, Dr. Matt Hirschfeld, who actually is in the process of joining our board of directors. He is the head of uh, maternal and family health at Alaska Native Medical Center. And he's been very involved in our child nutrition program, which is kind of our other side of the house. Our, I like to look at it as our preventative arm for Beans Cafe. And mm-hmm. um, he talks a lot about that. And, you know, there's there's so many things that um, we still don't understand. You know, why, why, why can two brothers who basically had uh, the same upbringing, adverse or not, um, be successful and one not be? You know, there's something about resiliency within a person. And I don't think we fully understand that yet. But we do know if you have a higher ACE score, you have a way higher probability of all kinds of issues, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, addiction issues, it's other um, physical health issues, heart disease, cancer, I mean, all kinds of things that, that are really impacted. When does a person become the responsibility of their community? I think we're all the responsibility of our community. Um, you know, we are a community. We're supposed to take care of each other. Uh, I don't think we have a community if we don't have that tenant, yeah. if we don't believe that. Um, you know, if you don't want to take care of others, then, you know, frankly, then move out in the middle of nowhere. But even then, you're probably going to be taking care of your neighbors. I mean, mm-hmm. Alaska, I think, is so rooted in that, in taking care of each other, more so than than many other places, because... A lot of people here don't have family. They don't have other resources. And um, I, I don't think we can have a community without it. I, I completely agree with you there. But I think that there is a, a disconnect with the general population and their uh, willingness to help, say, a homeless person out. It's like, I don't want my taxes to, to go to that person. Why don't they find a job? Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. You know, why can't they just, you know, sober up and get a job? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that if people came down and served a meal at Beans or spent an hour talking to our clients, they would have a very different outlook on that. Yeah. The reality of the situation. The reality of the situation. And, you know, if... It, yeah, there are some people that we're trying to help them just pull up, you know, pull up their bootstraps, get sober and get a job. But it's not that easy. Um and especially if you've had criminal issues in the past, hard to get a job. It's hard. You know, so many so many things come into play. But um, I, I understand that. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, former police chief Mew, one of the things that he had said to me a couple of times that, you know, the calls he would get and the outraged citizens he would talk to, it wasn't that they were concerned about the fact that there were homeless people. They didn't want to see the homeless people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't want that in my backyard. I don't want my kids to it's see it. It's an eyesore it. to a lot yeah. of people. And, and. You know, I've kind of used the analogy over the years of 
God forbid we had a golden retriever get hit by a car or have some kind of issue and be laying on the sidewalk in front of Beans Cafe. Do you know how many 911 calls there would be made? But we can have people passed out all over Anchorage Mm -hmm. and nobody stops, slows down or even bothers to call safety patrol. And that's disheartening. You know, when we've come to a point where we just look past a human being that is, you know, we don't know if they're breathing, if they're you know, I'm not saying you should go and approach every person that looks like they may be passed out, but call, make the call to the mm. non-emergency number, call the safety center. That's their job. That's what they're there for. They'll go out and check on that person. Mm-hmm. But we all at least need to have enough humanity in us to make a phone call. So I I live in this area, in, in the Fairview area. And so uh, cars, cars and gamble, uh, also known as, you know, sketchy cars, ghetto car, you know, whatever people want to call it. Um, I but, shop there. I see lots of clients. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's good. I, 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 I shop there all the time. Um, but whenever I'm driving down um, gamble, like toward, let's say, south side or, you know, on the Seward Highway, it's pretty often that somebody will just start crossing the road during a green light. I've always, it may seem pretty frivolous, like this thought, but like, I mean, what's going through their head? Because it seems like... Well, many times they're either under the influence to the point where they really don't even notice that they're in the road. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've had, you know, obviously several tragic uh, situations. And and it's terrible when when there's a vehicle pedestrian accident, whether it's a, you know, inebriated person, whether it's somebody on a bicycle. I mean, we have a lot of vehicle pedestrian biker kind of situations. I mean, there was somebody killed on Brayton Drive in South Anchorage just a few weeks ago. I mean, mm-hmm. it's yeah. terrible. You know, it certainly happens all over. And we, you know, a couple times a year do, you know, visibility efforts where, you know, this year Tote donated a bunch of safety vests and we passed them out to people and we put reflective tape on people and, you know, try and remind them, stay out of the roadway. Don't, you know, cross at the crosswalk, cross with the light. But, you know, many times if people are truly such a desperate state of mind, mm-hmm. they're not thinking of their own welfare. They're, they're not even comprehending really you know what what they're doing or if they are in their own minds they they could be wandering the black forest in germany yeah as far as yeah yeah i think a lot of cases they really don't know where they are Mm -hmm. it's tough it is now one thing that i would like to address that with that though is panhandling Mm -hmm. because this is something i get asked about a lot too why do we have so many panhandlers well it's because people keep giving them money Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know the simple fact is if people stopped giving them money we would not have people standing on the street corners so you're suggesting don't do that do not give money to panhandlers no no i will have to admit i do it often don't do it okay don't do it um you know tell me why yes because there's other resources and if we don't drive people to services and have them come down and engage in places like beans cafe or rescue mission or brother francis shelter or downtown hope center there's no chance they're going to get housed. There's no chance they're going to get mm-hmm. assistance or very yeah. little chance, um, you know, by enable. It's just like people that pass out sleeping bags to homeless people. Don't do that. Yeah. It enables them to stay in a bad situation. What should we do otherwise? You should um, volunteer your time at your favorite uh, agency that that serves that population. Donate your money instead of directly to a panhandler. Give it to an agency that's doing the work. I tell you, I can do a lot more with five dollars than somebody standing in the corner can. Um, And even, you know, people want to do little things like, oh, well, we're just going to give out blessing bags. You know what? Bring them to us. Bring them to Hope Center. Bring them to Rescue Mission. Let us give it out. If we as a community can surround everybody and say, we've established these great organizations. There's some that are, you know, religious based, that are some that are not religious based. There's there's a fit for everybody. Um, Go to one of those services and, and get your referrals and get your 
food and your bus pass and whatever else you need from those people. Um, you know, I recommend to people buy some one-way bus passes. They're two bucks. You can buy them at the transit center. And when somebody comes up and asks you for money, say, you know what, man, I'm really sorry. I, I just have policy. I don't give out money. Do you have a bus pass? Do you have a way to get to services? And if they mm -hmm. say no, hand them a bus pass. It's $2. They can then get to Beans Cafe or Rescue Mission or wherever they want to go and, you know, understand yourself kind of what the resources are. You know, you can go to the Anchorage Coalition and Homelessness website. Yeah. Um, you can look on the Muni site. There's lots of places you can look to see kind of what the different resources are if you're not familiar with them. Um, call 211. You know, they can tell you what the different shelters are. There, there's a lot of ways um, for for you to help people without um, giving them that $5 to get that next hit or that next bottle. It, it's not what they need. They, they need a place where people can wrap their arms around them and help them to get the help they really need. I think there is to an element of, um, you know, I'm going to kind of air quotes homeless people that, that are many times younger people that are very active in an addiction, uh, many times opioids, um, they are stealing a lot of stuff to mm -hmm. fuel their addiction because that, that that's not a cheap addiction. And um, they're also, many of them, not at a place where they're ready or willing to engage in treatment. And I think that's a that's a tough situation. And I think we have some, and I think we have some people who can't because they truly just don't want to be in a shelter or that close to other people or yeah. engaged in that way. And then there's people that are really kind of a little bit of a fringe element that are... Um, feeding their addiction mm -hmm. in whatever way they can. And, you know, we don't obviously tolerate that in shelter. So the, they're not really found very often in the shelters. So, yeah. um, you know, until we have more addiction services and different pathways for people, I, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And that that's where you get your petty theft. And I really believe and I'm I'm not APD. I but, uh, you know, my gut tells me that, you know, I, I don't see homeless people stealing cars. No, they're um, not you know, the ones. they're not the ones doing it. it's it's primarily drug trafficking, mm -hmm. drug trade. It's you know, that that's what's happening. It's not homeless people stealing your car. So what do you think is, is different about somebody who works directly with I hope I'm not using these some of these words wrong homelessness or I get less fortunate is what I was about to use. Um, when you're when you're working with the people that are the other, like you kind of mentioned vulnerable. before, the vulner like vulnerable people, yeah, vulnerable mm -hmm. people, yeah. So when you when you're working directly with them, I mean, something's got to change within you. Yeah, I think I have you know a little bit up close and personal view of it for sure, but I, I think that people need to understand that you know really this could be them, it could be their sibling. I mean, in my case, you know, even after I had taken this job, my son ended up with a heroin addiction, living in Oregon and being homeless. Mm -hmm. You know, here I am running a shelter in Anchorage, and I don't even know where my own kid is. Uh, and it's heartbreaking. And and I think that people have to realize that no matter what, it, nobody's exempt from mental health issues. Nobody's gets a pass on addiction in their family. You know, it can happen to anyone. And I I think we're seeing more of that. People are starting to understand some more of that with the opioid crisis just because of the sheer numbers of people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's touching people that maybe before had never really had anything like that of anybody they knew or any family members. And now it's it's hard to meet somebody that hasn't had the opioid epidemic impact them in some way. They've, you know, their son's friend, their neighbor, their, you know, everybody knows somebody that has somehow been impacted by this. You know, you look yeah. at it, more people have died than in the Vietnam War, for God's sakes. That's you know? nuts. And, and we're still treating it like a moral failing. Mm -hmm. It's not. No. It's a mental health issue. Do you know, um, we got, I think Alaska got that Medicaid 
1115 waiver passed at some point in recent history, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically what it's, it eliminates a rule that said that facilities could not bill Medicaid for treatment services if they had more than 16 beds. Which was ridiculous. Yeah. So that rule, we got a waiver for that from the federal government. So theoretically, people, places, agencies should be hopefully allowed to now um, bill Medicaid for services. Mm -hmm which should translate maybe into us having more beds, right? Yeah, Is it's, that happening? It's, it's happening slowly. Um, it's happening. Uh, you know, it's never going to happen fast enough. And right. and I'm a big proponent of the fact that we need many different paths for mm -hmm. people um, with addiction. Um, you know, some people need medically assisted treatment, you know, Suboxone, th those types of things. And p some people do really well on that. Some people don't want that. Some people go the AANA route and do really well. I'm a big fan of peer support. Um, I think that the Valley is light years ahead of probably about anywhere else in the country in terms of what they're doing with the Matsu Health Foundation and the group out there. Nice. Uh, they, they've been implementing for now, gosh, I think probably about almost two years, um, something called a bridge device. And we're doing it in Anchorage now, too, as well as part of the Anchorage Opioid Task Force, which Kim Whitaker and the folks that are involved in that are doing great things. And I really encourage people to get involved with them as well. You can look them up on Facebook, uh, Anchorage Opioid Task Force. If you're in the Matsu, look up the Matsu uh, group. But looking for alternate ways while we're trying to build out the treatment facilities we need. People mm -hmm. are dying every day. We can't wait, you know, for another 30 beds, another 100 beds, another 50 beds, whatever it is. We need to do something for folks today. And and, and I'm a real fan of, uh, of something called the bridge device. And I'm, again, not a medical expert. Uh, my understanding of it is that it's being used off-label to help people detox. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a uh, medical device that's disposable. It looks almost like a cochlear implant. You wear it, you know, it, it connects into your ear and, and spots on your head, and it helps um, mitigate the uh, symptoms that your body is sending to your brain, basically, that you're, you know, in extreme pain. I mean, a lot of people don't understand anything about opioid withdrawal, uh, but it's terrible. Mm -hmm. I can't haven't personally experienced it, but I've seen people and dealt with it. And it, it's like the worst thing people could ever go through from from what I've seen. Yeah. And it it helps to diffuse that and make it manageable. And then in three to five days, they're through detox. And the device is done and you're, you're good. You haven't had to go through this, you know, medically assisted detox, which is incredibly expensive. I can speak to that from personal experience from my son. Um, but we have to then make sure people have a place to go. Okay, so now you're detoxed. Now what? Is the bridge, this bridge device, is it outpatient? So you, It's outpatient. Yeah, okay. you're yeah. walking around. Okay. But, you know, you need a safe place to be still. You need somebody to help take care of you. Um, and then most of the time it's paired then with the Vivitrol shot, um, which is great if somebody's only using opioids. Now, if they're using meth, Vivitrol is not going to help curb that. You know, basically what Vivitrol, Vivitrol does is block opioids. So mm -hmm. you won't get high. But if you're using meth, it, it, it doesn't counteract that at all, which, you know, we're seeing a lot of people now using both drugs here in Alaska, especially. So. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's an excellent path for a lot of people that either can't afford or can't get into treatment. Um, that's a really great option. I know Matsu Health Foundation uh, funded some different studies of it. And it's not crazy expensive. I mean, I think the bridge device is maybe six, seven hundred dollars, mm -hmm. you know, and compare that to a medically assisted detox, which is, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's completely different ballpark. And they only do this out in the valley? No, they do it in Anchorage as well. Um, Jill Green, who was a who is um, I believe she's a PA. Yeah, she's um, my doctor. Yeah, she's Shout awesome. Out to Jill, she's a great lady. Yeah. And she started doing it. And you know, I'm a firm believer that every doctor should be treating addiction. Mm -hmm. You you don't have to every every primary care doctor 
everywhere should be treating addiction in their patients. It's kind of startling that they don't. Yeah, I mean, especially because we got level. into a lot of this mess because of the over prescription of opioids. And I really think, you know, I'm not again, I'm not a physician, but, um, you know, that was one thing my son said, I don't understand why I can't just go to a regular doctor and have them help me with this problem. Why do I have to go to a methadone treatment center? Or why mm -hmm. do I have to go here? Why can't I go see a regular doctor and yeah. get help? Because I think there is great assimilation in that and that return to normalcy for people and they need that or they want to, you know, a lot of people are still working and keeping their shit together, so to speak, in an active addiction and those people especially, you know, they, they maybe can't leave their family and their job to go for treatment. And I think we really need more people like Jill out there uh, mm -hmm. doing this. And I know when she sold her clinic, that was one of the things with Alaska Regional is that they agreed to continue doing that. So yeah. it's huge. She's been a huge advocate for it. Mm-hmm. So how do we normalize this? How, how do we how do we say this is this is happening? This is okay, and this is how you get help. I think talking about it, you know, um, and that was one thing after our son passed away, uh, which is just a little over two years ago. You yeah. know, we were we were very um, forthright about it, and you know, I think it was important to tell his story. And you know, here was literally like the all American kid. You know, played football, was on the homecoming court, super popular. Everybody loved him. He'd battled depression and anxiety and, you know, hurt his knee playing football and wrestling and then started liking, you know, pot a little too much and then got into the opioids and that was it. And, um, you know, again, just making people understand it can literally happen to anyone. Mm -hmm. It can be anybody's kid, anybody's brother, anybody's uncle. It's not just something that happens in some faraway land. Would you mind talking about your son? No, it's fine. A little bit? Yeah. Tucker, right? Yeah. Can you explain your your son's trajectory? I mean, what, what happened? You know, I don't know that I fully understand it yet myself. Um, it, it's weird because I kind of look back on some of it and it's still kind of some of it's a blur. He had um, moved to Oregon. I, I think he had been, he'd been using some heroin here um, before he moved. I don't think it was a constant thing. You know, it, it's hard to know. I, I, I don't know exactly where he was at. Um, but he wanted to move to Oregon, go to school, um, was very excited to move down there. He and his girlfriend were supposed to go. They broke up literally like two weeks before they were going. Her stuff had already been shipped in his car to Oregon. And he's like, all right, I'm going anyhow. He went by himself. You know, I took him down. He seemed to be doing really good for a while. You know, had a good roommate, had a good place to live, was going to school, was working part time. Everything seemed good um, from what I could tell from a distance. You know, yeah. again, you don't you, nobody really knows all the time, especially with an addict. They're they're incredibly manipulative and they will tell you what you want to hear. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I it, it's hard to say, but um, I know he did get hit by a car, you know, and then it just kind of seemed to spiral down from there. Mm -hmm. And. You know, he would, it was constant lies, right? It was constant, I need money for this. So the dog is sick. I need, I need books. I want to do this. You know, it was constant. And you kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, I love you, but I can't keep doing this. This is not, you know, we tried many times to get him into treatment. Um, he ended up very ill. He had um, MRSA in his lungs and had pneumonia, was put on a ventilator. Like they didn't think he was going to survive that. He survived that, uh, got into treatment. Um, it was a long road because he had a lot of health issues. Um, and he was, you know, seemed to be recovering pretty well and then literally walked away from treatment on like, I don't know, day 27 of 35 or something and uh, left and was back out on the street. We didn't hear from him for weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and then he ended up back in the hospital again and needed a heart valve replacement. 
So that's when shit really got real, I think, for him. And at this point, you know, he had hepatitis. He had a MRSA infection. He needed a heart valve replaced. And the doctors really even kind of debated on whether they would even replace the heart valve because, you know, if you're going to go right back to using, is it worth a putting you through this trauma? Is it worth doing this on you instead of someone else? You know, all of those things. So, you know, I went down and um, spent a lot of time with him and we advocated really hard and the, the doctors agreed to do it. And he was convinced that, you know, he was going to get clean this time and that was going to be it. And that point we we allowed him to come home because before we were like no not there's there's no treatment for you here there's not going to be options for you here and uh after he had the heart valve replacement and recovered from that then we brought him home and you know he seemed to be you know coming along it you know he certainly was a very different kid he wasn't the the same kid that mm-hmm. had left a few years before obviously seen a lot of shit yeah. You know, you don't get to that level of using heroin and meth and not see some pretty serious shit. Mm-hmm. He was, I think, haunted by a lot of the choices he'd made and the impact it had on our family and him and, you know, all those that loved him. And it was hard. And I think he um, he struggled with that. And he at one point said to me, um, uh, you know, still dealing, he was still dealing with a lot of mental health issues. And um, he said at one point to me, he said, I don't want to die, but I wish I hadn't lived. And that was probably one of the most heartbreaking things. That still haunts me. And he was trying really hard, I think, to live. But it was a tough, tough road. And uh, he relapsed and and died. And um, I think it's one thing that people don't understand, the pull of that drug. Mm -hmm. And that, you know. Who can go through literally being on a ventilator for, I don't know, four weeks, almost dying, having a heart valve replaced, almost dying, finally reunite with your family, come home, make peace with everybody. You're finally in a place where you can turn this shit around and you still relapse. Yeah. There's no words, you know, there's just no words. I, I, I think to me, it's just astounding. And, you know, you hear from other people that, that are in recovery and it's a lifelong thing. This isn't, you know, oh, I'm cured. You know, I think it's something that will haunt people for their entire lives, most of them, if, if they've really been in deep with it. Yeah. And I think that certainly would have been the case for him. Well, in NA or, or AA, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Yeah. Every day yeah. is a new day. Yeah. Yeah. Which seems like it might be hard for people to look forward to, especially, you know, in the situation that Tucker was in. Like, I got to wake up and feel like this every fucking morning. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a... And, you know, we had a lot of struggles with trying to get his uh, behavioral health treated here. And, you know, he was on um, some different medications that the doctors didn't think were good for him being, you know, uh, hopefully at that time, not an active addict, but an addict. And they wanted him off of the benzos. And Mm -hmm. and he really flipped out about it. And I think that was kind of part of the beginning of the end for him of of hope, because I think he really felt like nobody was going to help him deal with the behavioral uh, health issues. And he just, you know, we didn't know where else to go. Behavior, like you mean like the anxiety, and anxiety stuff. and depression yeah. and yeah, mostly mm-hmm. anxiety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like there, there was a, um, a certain measure of frustration that was involved. I mean, on oh, his part. And, absolutely. And, and even, even when we talk about a lot of the, the people that you work with, I mean, it's, it's like they want to get better, but how? I agree. You know, and, and, Allison, who is the director of Covenant House and 
uh, is a good friend of mine. And, you know, her and I and, you know, several of my other peers, we really tried to pull together to figure out what could be treatment options for Tucker. And uh, granted, this is going back, you know, two and a half, three years. It was a very different landscape than it is today. Thank God it's much better than it was. But there were literally like, okay, go for medically assistant treatment, go every single day and get your Zaboxin. Or uh, there was a program in the Valley, maybe. Uh, or go to the Adult Rehabilitation Center at Salvation Army, which is now closed. They're not even operating that program. Or kind of tough it out and sort it out on your own. I mean, there there really weren't many options. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think if I could have at the time connected in with somebody like Mark Weaver, who is now doing a tremendous job with peer support and working for CITC, if, if I had known Mark then and I could have connected him with Mark and some of the other folks with some really intensive peer support that was kind of no bullshit peer support, I think it could have made a huge difference for him because he was a person that craved being around other people. He was a lot like me, mm-hmm. um, very outgoing, lo- loved people, loved to be around people. And he really kind of, you know, withdrew into himself a lot. And that, that was not healthy for him. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thankful that there are options like that for others now. One of the things that uh, I learned when I was doing the research, <clears throat> pardon me, to to um, write one of the stories with you and Dr. Butler was uh, was reading like some government report that suddenly escapes me, but they had some um, photos, brain scans, whatever mm-hmm. you call those things, or the CAT scans, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sorry for my lack of technical knowledge, but um, they were showing the progress of somebody somebody's brain who had who had gotten off of drugs and like the the pleasure centers in your brain um on a normal person where they would fire when you like when you eat food or when somebody hugs you um things that you know we all take for granted that we we are each able to go through our days and at least do one little thing here or there that makes those pleasure centers fire and it keeps us going like it's you know those things feel nice um but a week a month four months out for an addict that's getting off of drugs, none of that stuff works. Like your 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 brain has completely rewired to only respond to the opioids in order to produce those kind of responses. So when people are like, "Well, you, you know what? That you should just tough it out. Like you detoxed. What's the problem?" And it's like you know you don't for months and months a person has to look forward to physiologically being unable to feel good or happy, mm-hmm. or none of that, like, it's not working, you mm-hmm. know? So, so yes, the pull of the drug is so intense, and maybe it's partly because, like, after a while, man, we are human beings, and, and we want to feel some measure of good at some point, and to have no prospects for it, mm-hmm. except for this substance that you can just walk down on the corner and find, like, that's a pretty huge hurdle to try and get over. Yeah. You know, yeah. one thing, um, I've, I've had family members that have been deep, and alcoholism and kind of what I'm getting from this conversation when we're, we're talking about loved ones or um, people that we interact with when they're, they're trying to describe this struggle. It's like it's almost indescribable mm-hmm. because when you're trying to describe it to somebody who has no frame of reference, you know, they, they say things like you just don't understand, mm-hmm. you know, or I wish I could be normal, almost like these like these little platitudes, because it is so indescribable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think it's something that, thankfully, uh, none of us in this room can can fully understand. And I think the only way that a lot of people can get through it is by the support of people who have gotten through it and have come out on the other side. And that's why I'm just a huge fan of of, of peer support and peer mentorship. I, I think it's important. And I, I think having different living options, you know, for folks that, you know, 
not everybody wants more of a communal living thing, but but a lot of people do. And even with our clients, you know, our, our folks are very communal and you start looking at housing models and we keep trying to put people scattered site and one here and one there. And like, no, how about if we get three or four people together and mm-hmm. we help them work together to help each other. I, I think that's always more powerful than sending somebody off on their own. Well, and based on what you said earlier, it seems like that's their natural inclination anyway. You know, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you utilize that for all you can? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what would you say to somebody who who says something like, you know, why do we why do we even care about these people? You know, like they're they're helping to thin the herd. Oh, yeah. I You know, and and for me, it's because they're somebody's son. Yeah. It's my son. It's my kid. And, you know, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. It can happen to your neighbor. It can happen to your sister. You know, nobody has kids and says, oh, well, that one's going to be a heroin addict and that one's going to be a chef and that one's going to, I don't know, she's going to go to law school or something. She's on fire. You know, nobody, nobody has those visions for their children. And I always say too, nobody, nobody wants to grow up to be a homeless person, mm-hmm. right? That That's not on anybody's wish list. Especially a homeless person in Alaska. Yeah. 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 Jeez. Yeah. And, you know, I think that our society is starting to come around a little bit, at least about the, about that attitude, I hope. Um, of like, well, if they can't stop using, then, you know, that's their choice and that's, you know, whatever, you know, I, it's a very callous position to take because they have somebody that loves them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that, that I'm looking at here, Aurora, from, from your notes. Thank you. <laughs> she did all this research and all this planning ahead. No, We've probably no, completely just... gone off script. Oh, no, no, this is, it really, this is, this is wonderful. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, but you mentioned that there's a connection between trauma and homelessness and crime and abuse and, and, and health problems. I don't know if we could form a question out of that. (laughs) Um, well, she sort of alluded to it earlier. I think I'll let you speak to this too, but when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences, there is a dramatic correlation between a person who has gone through a lot of terrible shit as a child and a person who develops heart disease mm-hmm. at a, you know, a, a much younger age than is normal mm-hmm. um, or at a higher rate at a higher yeah. rate. Yeah. Um, so, so those things, they just carry forward mm-hmm. so far. And in some people, again, and like you said, you know, we can't always tell, we can't always tell why some people seem, uh, more affected by those things than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I think that you hit the nail on the head with 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 peer support and purpose being two of the biggest factors that are not addressed frequently enough when it comes to you know trying to provide services to home, people experiencing homelessness or addiction or or any of that stuff because resilience comes from I'm a firm believer that it comes from people that love you. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's somebody the to believe thing. in you, somebody to care about you. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in college, even um, I interned at a juvenile detention facility in Los Angeles. And that was, you know, pretty eye-opening experience for, you know, a 19-year-old. And it was, you know, this little blonde thing back then. And going in there, and it's it was a men's juvenile detention facility. And my my role was to go in and, and tutor and help uh, guys get their GED and kind of help, you know, get your GED, have a plan, you know, what do you want to do? And uh, I ended up going back for, I think, three semesters doing it. And what I learned above and beyond in that experience was that most of those kids didn't have anybody who gave a shit about them. Their parents were in jail. 
Nobody cared about him. They didn't feel like anybody loved him. Nobody treated him with dignity and respect. They were they were thrown away. And the only place they found a family or a home was in the gangs. Yeah. And and I think that that's really been um, a huge problem in a lot of our communities. Um, that you know this addiction it, it kind of creates this you know tsunami effect. You know if somebody's dad is incarcerated. And they don't have a relationship with that child because they're not healthy and whatever it is, it really does continue to create this ripple effect, ripple effect, ripple effect. And, you know, how do you stop that? How do you say, no, you're worth saving. You, I care about you. You're smart. You have value. You can do something. And many of these kids have, had never heard that before from anybody. Anybody. You know, the gang, their gang family, you know, wanted something from them for the most part. They were, they supported each other too, but the higher ups, you know, wanted them to make more money and run more drugs and whatever, you Do know, dirty work. using them. But we have to figure out how to stop that. And, and, and that's probably, probably one of the reasons too why I'm such a huge fan of Covenant House as well, because, you know, it's really about those kids that have been, and I, I don't like to use the term thrown away, but that they don't have somebody in their life that, believes in them or cares about them or loves them. And sometimes even that isn't enough. And I've seen it firsthand that, you know, it's not enough sometimes for everybody. But I think we have to at least start there. Mm -hmm. Because without that, I I think it's awfully hard to have any hope. There's a quote from some fellow that was a doctor at the Mayo Clinic forever that hit me really hard. And I always remember that the proper time to influence the character of a child is 100 years before he is born. Mm -hmm. And that almost, I try not to feel hopeless. You know what I mean? But we have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. before we get there. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're learning more, too, about, you know, historical trauma in our Native cultures. And, you know, that's something that there's, you know, being research done on now on that and on, you know, uh, offspring of Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's mm-hmm. so much that Epigenetics. we don't understand still about the brain, about genetic mutations and how these, you know, adverse childhood experiences or adverse experiences at any point in your life can affect your children. Children's children. Can we can we uh, explore that a little bit? The, you said, I don't know that I know much about it, okay. but I, I'm kind of winging it here. But okay. and, but you know, I, I've read a few things here and there, and it and it's they're they're doing more and more studies about mm-hmm. it, and it, it's eye opening to say the least. How yeah. your um your your parents and your grandparents their epigenetics uh, mm-hmm. epigenetics field of, mm-hmm. yeah okay and mm-hmm. so how that can actually affect you down the line or, or the, yeah generations the later you know mm-hmm. um, not even like uh, what they were finding the studies are showing that children of people who had been through it was like drought or famine or something forgive me i don't have it right in front of me but um you know it would it would it would make sense if uh, a woman pregnant during drought or famine maybe gave birth to a child that uh, had a propensity to try and eat a lot of food, maybe to make up for that, like she would have been in utero. But they're finding that those same characteristics and traits and people maybe that have struggles with food can come from grandparents mm-hmm. who went through those situations. So it's a really new field of study. Mm-hmm. They don't understand a lot about it. But people who went through the Holocaust, you know, their grandchildren, mm-hmm. maybe they have more of a propensity for anxiety and fear responses. Mm-hmm. Um so it's not, you know, people incorrectly categorize it as like genetic memory. And that's not that's not the right way to say it. But mm-hmm. there is something going on at the genetic level in which major trauma gets gets carried way down, um, mm-hmm. which means, holy shit, we have better get started <laughs> if we want things to get better anytime soon. Yeah. And I, I really do worry about, you know, kind of this uh, fallout from the 
opioid crisis. And, and you know, too. there's a lot of children that are without parents that are being raised by grandparents that are doing the best they can, but they've seen a lot. They've heard a lot. You know, how are they going to be in 20 years? And mm -hmm. how do we embrace those kids and those grandparents now raising those kids? And that that's a real crisis around the country as well. I always try to think of what am I not looking at? You know, because we have what we're looking at presently, mm -hmm. you know, and we have a propensity to be reactionary to the thing that we're looking at immediately, but we're not thinking about 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So to take it full circle here, because we're, we're, we're nearing the end, we talked about your, your Sunday dinners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What will you be making this Sunday? <laughs> oh, well, my, my son has a has a new toy he got for Christmas that uh, goes on the Traeger, which is a smoker. And my, my son is all about meats. He's a, he's he's a, huge, so he's a carnivore good. and a carnivore and a carnivore. And he's actually he's a great amazing. cook. I'll give him a little plug. He does work as a chef at South. So go, go check it out. He's really enjoying that. And South Restaurant. South right? Restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so he's going to do something with that. And I, I can't think of the name of the thing, but it's this big silver pan and it has a spike in the middle and you layer the meats on it. So uh, I think you're, he's doing El Pastor tacos or something. So we're going to do pork. Uh, I picked up a huge pork shoulder and we're going to layer sliced pork with onions and peppers and probably he will either brine or marinate it first and then probably oh, put man. it on the smoker for like 10 hours. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.